happy to be here again with all I have so many friends in Israel, and I'm sure I'll make new friends on this visit. Um, it's uh, Israel, such a wonderful country, and uh, actually, this program here and the devotees are famous now around the world. Uh, I was here two years ago, and uh, we recorded some programs and uh, just like we're doing now actually it's going around the world and um, I received so many comments everywhere I went in America and South America and Europe everywhere I went people were mentioning how much they appreciated the Israeli devotees and um, I'm not just saying this to make sure I get free lunch tomorrow. <laughs> well, it's also for that, but um, but really, everywhere I went, um, everywhere I went, uh, people kept telling me that the Israeli devotees—they were so impressed, and they they loved watching the programs. And I, I traveled to many, many countries, but it was actually the Israeli programs that people mentioned the most, that that seemed to make the most impression on other devotees around the world. And on me also, of course. So, uh, I'm really glad to be here, back to home, back to Israel. <laughs> yeah, that's Yisrael. So, um, tonight I thought I would speak on um, something vaguely related to Krishna consciousness, somehow connected to what we're doing. And I thought it would be interesting to talk about um, the human phenomenon, the human phenomena of religion. Um, of course, nowadays there is a um, <clears throat> there is a common distinction that many people make between being religious and being spiritual, and usually being spiritual is considered better, and being religious is not as good. And of course, all around the world, we see very religious people who certainly, to some extent, justify that comparison. <laughs> so, so I want to talk about religion, first of all, as a human phenomenon. And by human, I don't mean to say, what I don't mean is <laughs> that, um, that all of the philosophical or theological claims of a particular religion are simply human inventions. Uh, I, I, I think the situation is more complex than that. And so, another scholar here, Ishwara Krishna. So, um, so I'll begin, because I was thinking about this topic. Um, I would say we begin at the beginning with, with, with human intelligence. Uh, human beings have, as far as we know, a unique capacity to ask uh, philosophical questions or metaphysical questions. Um, Aristotle made this distinction between the physical, this is his terminology, between the physical and the metaphysical. And in Greek, meta means above or what comes after. So there is a Sanskrit proverb which states, um, if I remember it, this is not age related, I just haven't quoted it in a long time. Aharani dra 
भय मैथुनं च सामान्य पशु भी नाना धर्मे तेषां अधिको विशेष धर्मेन हीना पशु भी समाना वट दिस मीन्स इन इंग्लिश इज दैट आहार दैट देर आर फोर एक्टिविटीज ईडिंग आहार भय निद्रा आहार निद्रा स्लीपिंग ईडिंग स्लीपिंग भय which literally means fear or danger but it has this in this context it has a sense of one's impulse to defend oneself from danger and maituna which means sexuality uh interestingly the the actual vedic culture was very much gender neutral uh some people who i think are not very well informed think that it was a kind of uh male dominant society but actually the word sexuality in sanskrit maitanam literally means mutuality it literally means mutuality and and so from mitas mitas uh, mutual so so these four activities eating sleeping you could say defending oneself and uh and sexuality samanyam etat pashu bhinarana this proverb said says literally this is the equality samanyameta this is the equality of human beings with animals this is the so human beings and animals are equal in that they all engage in these four activities but dharmehi teshang adiko vishesho at the same time human beings have a specific superiority It's interesting because the idea here is that human beings are not generally superior. For example, some animals can run faster than we can. Well, not faster than me, but maybe faster. <laughs> Just kidding. So, in many activities, specifically eating, sleeping, mating, sexuality and 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 defense, I mean animals have is certain superiority so we are not better than animals in those things but our specific superiority is in what is called here dharma dharma and uh and therefore the logic is very simple that dharmena hina pasubhi samana human beings that do not have dharma are equal to animals it's a very simple logic that you know a and b are equal in all these characteristics However, A is superior in one specific characteristic you would call it X. And so if A lacks X, then A in every sense is equal to B. So, it's a very simple logic. So, what is dharma? Uh this word is translated in many ways. This it became a very prominent word uh in Buddhism actually. In fact, the uh in a sense if you look at the historical Buddha, the extent to which we can recover the historical buddha just it's like trying to recover the historical jesus only almost worse because it was 500 years before jesus and uh, the first serious biography of buddha was written about 500 years after he lived so you can imagine what a problem that was in, in the case of jesus it only took about two or three generations to, so that was also a problem anyway so um so buddha in a sense 
radically simplified uh, the approach to, you could call it metaphysical progress. By metaphysical here, I mean, going back to that verse, that we have obviously physical bodies and we have physical needs, and that's just the way it is. And whether someone is a spiritualist or a materialist, you have to take your bodily needs seriously, or you'll probably end up prematurely dead or psychotic. And so it was some, some serious problem. So, in fact, Krishna talks about that in the Bhagavad Gita, that you have to take seriously your, your human dimension, the fact that you have a human body. At the same time, um, at the same time, we have a metaphysical dimension. For example, Israel, America's, I mean, nowadays, most countries in the world have democracy. Um, democracy is based on a very clear metaphysical assumption. It's interesting because around the world, uh, now the sort of like the standard form of government for civilized countries is secular democracy. However, democracy is based on a philosophical assumption, which is metaphysical, namely the assumption that we're all equal. Because if we're not equal, why should we all get one vote, right? So equality, if someone says we're all equal, doesn't matter what race or what religion, we're all equal, there's a very simple question someone could ask, which is, how do you know? How do you know we're equal? You can't empirically prove it. Every conceivable empirical test that you could give human beings would tell you every single time that human beings aren't equal. You can give intelligence tests. You can test people's artistic ability, athletic ability, anything. And you'll find that everyone is not equal. So our, our governments, our justice system, our sense of morality, interestingly, is not based on empirical science. It's based on something which is empirically absurd, but somehow we believe is true, and that is that we're all equal. So if we are right, if we are actually equal in some way, what that means, obviously, is that we all live in a bi-dimensional universe. Those are angels confirming what I just said. <laughs> yeah, everyone trying. I have a phone, but I don't turn it off because no one calls me in Israel. <laughs> Except I'm going to have a darn attorney in there here right now, and they probably won't call me during the lecture. So, oh, take another example. Let's say someone kills an innocent person such as in, in a terrorist act. Someone just kills innocent people. And basically every sane person in the world sees that as evil. Now the simple question is, is it really bad? Is it really bad to kill innocent people? If you are a serious, logically consistent materialist, you would have to say no. I mean, that's kind of monstrous, but you would have to say no, logically, for the simple reason that philosophical materialism means that all that's really real is matter, and all that we can really know objectively is matter. 
And since values, moral values, such as it is wrong to kill innocent people, that's a moral value. And therefore, it is entirely a metaphysical object. <laughs> the, the evil, by the way, the Scottish philosopher David Hume brought this up among the some of the, anyway, won't, won't talk about Hume. I'll give him a break tonight. So, but the point is that the evil, the evil of killing innocent people is not something that you can hold up and point to empirically. It's metaphysical. So if you believe that it's really wrong to kill innocent people, it's actually objectively wrong, and then you live in a bi-dimensional universe. You live in a bi-dimensional universe. Now, if someone is a fanatical evolutionist, they would have to say that no, it is not wrong to kill innocent people. It's not wrong to kill all the babies in the world. Uh, it's just that evolution, blind evolution, programmed us neurologically to believe a fairy tale, namely that some things are right and some things are wrong because gene communities that believe this fairy tale survive better. Although, unfortunately, uh, societies that are brutal and murderous have certain survival advantages. We won't go into that. But anyway, so, but, but that's, you have to commit to that. So if you, if, if someone says that all that is really real is material, you are basically committed to a world in which it's not wrong to kill innocent people, there's no such thing as equality, and justice is just a fairy tale. Because that's the world you get, logically. That's the, of course, someone may not be concerned with being rational. Someone may not be concerned with being logically consistent. But if you are, if you would like to be or want to remain a rational human being, then you have to understand the consequences of the philosophical position called materialism. Those are the logical, inescapable consequences. <coughs> now, people realized that a very long time ago. It's not that I just revealed something that no one ever thought about. And so th that's only one of the reasons for which, as far back as you go in history, thousands and thousands of years, people understood that actually we do live in a complex universe which is bi-dimensional. There is a physical reality and there is a metaphysical reality that certain values are real. Not only that, there's another reason why people from the beginning of time, if there was such a thing, um, developed certain metaphysical worldviews, which later, and I'll go into that, because of, I think sociological principles became uh, sort of formalized into what we now call religions. But the fact is that um, the idea of belonging to a religion is a later development historically. It's a later development. Uh, the, for example, in the Mahabharata, if any of you know the ancient text Mahabharata, one thing you may find interesting, or you may not have noticed, is that there are no organized religions in the Mahabharata. There are no religious institutions. If you look at the Bible, 
there were the you know there were there are communities tribes and communities that believe this is god and other people that believe something else but anyway so but but the basic idea that um well for one thing where does everything come from why do we exist and uh why are certain values real or let's say you examine your own self if you think about yourself you you realize that in a sense we are inside the body you know the simple little quiz that Prabhupada used to ask where he would Prabhupada once spoke at a school with children and he called a child to the front and said point to your arm point to your head and then he said point to yourself so the fact is that we are conscious beings we are conscious beings and uh consciousness is not physical now when there is consciousness in the body when the body is alive obviously consciousness interacts with the body and so there are all kinds of symptoms of life in fact there's a whole field called biology if you know the etymology from the greek word the greek word bios means life and logos of course means the logic or the the rational explanation so biology is, is explaining life by talking about the physical conditions in which life can exist in the body the symptoms of the fact that a body is alive and so on but ultimately consciousness itself is different from any it's not a physical object we can't talk about what color consciousness is you can be conscious of many colors but consciousness consciousness itself has no color it's not it has no weight it has no texture it's not a physical object it's not material energy it's consciousness and so that's another reason why people realized they lived in a bi-dimensional universe and also finally uh studies show that people that live in nature people that live in small towns or villages or in the country or the wilderness <laughs> tend to be much more likely to believe in god or some kind of divine existence in the world and that uh i mean there have always been atheists like there was democritus among the ancient greek philosophers and there was charvak among the ancient uh south asian philosophers and so on so it's always a position there's always someone in the crowd that just says no you're all wrong there's nothing that's you know there's always someone that's going to say that but atheism as a significant uh piece of the intellectual pie is something that you tend to find in cities not in the country in fact even if you look at the greco-roman world the classical world one of the main features of it is as any historian will tell you it was a very urban culture it was a an, a sophisticated urban culture so people that actually are in touch with nature on a daily basis on an hourly basis people that actually live in the natural world tend to understand very easily 
that there's more out there. There's something behind all this. And um, so for all these different reasons, uh, people throughout history, most of the people who have ever lived on this planet, human beings, have come to the conclusion that we are not alone in the world, that there is some kind of higher power. You find this virtually everywhere throughout history. So um, let's assume for the moment that most people that ever lived actually were right. Because now an atheist will say, well, that doesn't prove anything. Well, it actually does prove something. I'll tell you what it proves. It proves, first of all, that one of two things must be true. Number one, that there is some kind of divine power in the universe. Or number two, that somehow or other human beings, almost all of them, are delusional. That almost all human beings who have ever lived were delusional and that somehow we have evolved neurologically so that we are radically delusional about the most important things in life. So if we are radically delusional as a, as a species about the most important things of life, how can we trust any other judgments? For example, so if you, in other words, if you put forward a theory of radical skepticism about human awareness, there are consequences. You may not like all the consequences of that theory. For example, I'll give you one consequence. That um, most people that ever lived believed that there's a real world out there. Because a philosopher can say, and philosophers have said, because, you know, there are, anyway, I won't make any jokes about philosophers, but some philosophers have said they've put forward this idea which is called, in Western philosophy, solipsism. Which means that we actually can never know if there's a real world out there. Don't take this too seriously or you may need psychiatric treatment. But anyway, I don't want to push anyone over the edge here. So, but solipsism is the philosophical position that all you could ever really know is the content of your own mind. And you have no way of proving that there's an objective world outside your mind. Because even if you say, well, look, there's a cup, that's called circular reasoning. This is a real cup outside my mind, only if it's true that there's a real world outside my mind. So circular reasoning means the very thing you're trying to prove, you give us as evidence for itself. So instead of having an argument which proceeds, you could say, in, in a, I don't know, in a straight way so that you have premise, premise, conclusion. You actually have the premise is the conclusion. So it just goes around and around. And it's, that's called circular reasoning. And in logic, it is a, uh, you know, it's a red card. <laughs> so now, fortunately, I think probably everyone in this room believes there really is a world outside our mind. If not, uh, We'll talk to you after the program and <laughs> try to help you. And we'll give you extra, a, a big plate of food also. So, but what's interesting is that um, 
if if you say that the fact that most human beings that ever lived were convinced that they could experience or they had good reasons to believe that there is some kind of divine power beyond the human realm if you think that that massive testimony massive testimony means nothing then the idea that there's a real world out there that testimony also has to be doubted and if that testimony is doubted what is the position of empirical science empirical science suddenly uh, becomes simply someone's idea so there, there was a great american philosopher named william james well americans think he was a great american philosopher i don't know what people in other countries think but i mean he is generally considered to be one of the great early philosophers he wrote a famous book called um the varieties of religious experience it, it's a very famous book and um he's a nice guy so but i remember when i was taking a philosophy class at ucla that um the professor mentioned that william james said something that i found very interesting even though he was examining everything analyzing everything deconstructing things he said there are certain deep structures in the human mind that i'm not going to mess with because you can literally think yourself crazy and that's not the path to knowledge and so there are certain i mean kant the german philosopher kant talks about this about very deep structures in the mind and so just as our understanding that there's a, a real world outside our mind, it, it goes to the deepest level of human cognition. I'll give you an example. Um, hope you don't mind all this philosophy, but it's, uh, I guess it's an honest way to make a living. <laughs> I could be doing worse things, so. For example, Consider, consider the experience that we all have, not every day, but many days of the week, that we go to sleep, we dream, and then we wake up. Now, when we wake up, no matter how real the dream was, and dreams are very real. I mean, when you're dreaming, it's not a dream. When you're dreaming, that's the real world and you are really into it and you laugh and you cry and so on. And yet when you wake up, you know, in a second, you, you realize that was a dream and somehow my waking state is more real. Now, the, the simple question is, how do you know that? You can't prove it. No, the dancing comes later. <laughs> so, you can't prove it. How can you prove it? What would you do to prove it? What if someone says, you went into another dimension, the real world, and now, anyway, you know, it's like one of those Twilight Zone things. <laughs> and yet, everyone realizes, no, my waking consciousness is more real than my dream consciousness. In the same way, and this is the point I want to get to, and then I'll get on to religion as opposed to spiritual knowledge. When people have, quote unquote, a spiritual experience, 
when people have spiritual experiences or an experience of God in whatever religion, it is very common that people realize that my consciousness of God is more real than my previous consciousness exactly in the same way that my waking consciousness is more real than my dream. I'm sort of borrowing a little bit from Plato here, but he won't mind. So, but that's the idea. Now, if so, just as, so if someone says, prove there's a God, I could say, prove that your consciousness right now is more real than when you're dreaming. And how are you going to prove it? So you can't prove everything. Okay, Plato to Aristotle is like a tag team. You know, like in wrestling matches, one person tags the other person. They come in. Anyway, so it's Plato to Aristotle again. So Aristotle made the point that, um, and this is still considered valid in philosophy. It's still considered valid, I mean, in, in terms of epistemology. Epistemology means how do you know you know, basically. The idea is that certain things are, or we claim they are, self-evident. They're self, they prove themselves. You can't prove to a skeptical person there's a real world out there. A scientist cannot prove and doesn't even try to prove to skeptical people there's a real physical world, that the laws of nature are uniform in certain ways. It's just, if you don't believe that, you just, you're not in the game. It's like, let, let's say, for example, people are playing soccer and someone says, I don't, I don't accept that these are the goals. Okay, you're just not in the game. <laughs> and so the game here is called, you know, the real world. So if, you, if someone wants to take sort of an eccentric radical position, that's fine. You're just not in the real world and you're probably a hypocrite because in real life, everyone acts as if the world was real. <laughs> so um, in that way, uh, most people in the world believe they have good reason to accept that there's some kind of God or goddess or some kind of divine power. And they believe that their experience is self-evident. It doesn't require extrinsic proof because it's self-evident, it proves itself. So now, we ha so we have this phenomenon where people have metaphysical experiences. Actually, it's interesting, uh, a way you could, sort of a literal translation of metaphysical would be supernatural, meta, super, you know, which, what's beyond from the Latin. The Latin form would be supernatural. The Greek form is sort of metaphysical. And so, but now, meanwhile, back on Earth, um, human beings have their, you could say, their animal nature. Well, we know that. And part of this animal nature is that, for example, people tend to live in communities. And there's a whole realm of psychology and social psychology. For example, you know, you know, evolutionists love to explain everything this way. The reason we do everything is because it gave us some type of uh, survival advantage. I won't go into that whole bad logic for now, but 
because they're not good philosophers. They may be good, you know, in science, but they're terrible philosophers usually. But anyway, but it is the fact that, um, for example, let's say you're born in a family. There's a certain kind of family solidarity. There's a community solidarity. Your survival may depend on it. In a country like Israel, uh, which is surrounded uh, by danger, um, you can very easily understand the need for people to maintain a certain minimum level of unity and solidarity. It's actually necessary for your survival. And so what happens is that among people that have some kind of experience of the divine or God, some of them are philosophers and most of them are not. Philosophers tend to look for general ideas, large ideas. Most people don't look for that. And so what happens is you have this acceptance of God. I'm just going to say God for short, you know, or something like that. Um, and, but it, 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 it interacts with all kinds of social psychology. For example, the need for solidarity, the need for everyone to be together and be united. And it, it becomes, uh, then something else happens. It, it, the, the, you could say the spiritual experience, just to, sort of in a crude expression, just to call it that, sort of the, the general spiritual experience that takes place all around the world throughout history, it interacts with certain very heavy forms of social psychology. Not only that, uh, we find that human beings uh, they're just psych you know, this is just common psychology that people become attached, for example, to a certain language, to certain ways of dressing, to certain kinds of food, certain kinds of music, certain types of rituals. And uh, human beings become very attached to that. They're born in this. They feel comfortable in that. Somehow they're the, the, the natural attachment that children have to their parents, that parents have for their children, uh, you know, families, extended families, tribes, all this attachment and this, it, it, it becomes inextricably connected to certain material ways of living in terms of dress, music, customs, food, and so on and so forth. And also people express their religious ideas or spiritual ideas in terms of certain forms of dress, certain kinds of food, certain kinds of music, architecture, and so on. And so you get the formation of these human religions. I mean, you could say that at the core of it, at the center of human religions, you have some kind of spiritual experience. But that spiritual experience often becomes overwhelmed, overwhelmed by the whole human side the external culture, the sense of solidarity, this is our tribe, this is our people, and the original spiritual experience is kind of buried, it's just buried, and, and often even forgotten, so that it's, it's, it's not even really the point anymore. So I think, I mean, I've tried to give a little bit of a, you know, in terms of social science, in terms of history, philosophy, tried to give a little picture of where this dichotomy comes from, where this duality comes from between religion and spirituality. And so, um, any questions on that so far? I'm just trying to build a certain 
logical idea here. Anything on that so far? Because I was about to move on to another topic. And uh, I, yes. I, oh. Why is it that e even if a person uh, might believe in God and might believe that he, he has a spiritual nature, still, uh, why, why, why is the tendency not to believe in God and not, not to go on the spiritual path? What, what, what makes a person believe that there isn't a spiritual? You want to, did everyone hear that? Everyone heard? Amazing acoustics. Okay. <laughs> so, um, for one thing, uh, in the modern age, there has been a lot of material advancement. And... Um, People who believe just because they want to relieve their suffering, if they're doing well, then religion becomes unnecessary. And, and, and there's a type of humanism, because there has been a lot of progress. There's, it's kind of like, how should I put it? It's kind of like the, the, the enthusiasm of the neophyte, someone that just got some money. Let's say someone that was always poor and suddenly got some money. That person becomes very enthusiastic and thinks I can solve all my problems because I have money, right? You know, people win the lottery. And, and then uh, people who have always had money know very well that it doesn't solve your problems. I mean, it's good. I mean, I, I'm not going to give away my money. But, <laughs> I mean, it's nice to be able to live comfortably and with security and all that. So I'm totally pro having enough money. But the point is that, but beyond simply the, the security and, and, and the, the comfort that comes with having enough money, people who just get it for the first time, there's a type of this ex, ex, uh, extreme enthusiasm. People who have had money for a long time know it's nice to have money, but it's not enough to make you happy. You know, you need more in life. Or it's just like, for example, a typical, uh, in fact, there's a word in English, sophomoric. Sophomoric comes from the word sophomore. Sophomore is like a new student at the university. First year is freshman, second year is called sophomore. And so sophomoric means that, I remember when I was young, I was 17 years old, I went to the university in, the, in LA, then I went to Berkeley, and I thought I knew everything, you know, because for the first time you're kind of learning sophisticated things and big words. And there's that sort of, you know, immature, naive enthusiasm of the new student who thinks I know everything. And so I think historically that's something like what we've experienced, because if you look at the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, and then you have the Renaissance and the Age of Reason, and then the Enlightenment, and then science and technology. And so there's this kind of like this naive enthusiasm that, you know, we are God. Uh, but actually, if you look at the basic points, nothing really has changed. We still get old, we still die. And so things have not really changed. And, and so I think what's happening now in the world is that many people are realizing that we can't do everything, science can't do everything, and there is something more in life. But um, you, was it, you wanted to ask something? Yeah, I wanted to ask about equality. Um, you started talking about mm -hmm. in relation to uh, 
spiritual advancement, uh, any religion. Because <laughs> w- w- William Blake wrote, uh, same law for the lion and ox of oppression. And I think it's true, but spiritually, it's, it's, it's different. Materially, it uh, sounds bad, but it's true. So what about taking this to a spiritual level? Okay. Okay, because we, we, of, of course we are. We are yeah, uh, there's something I've talked about. Yeah. But we are bound. We are bound. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I've actually talked a lot about this. Um, there are two realities in this world, and there are two realities. You find these same two realities in Bhagavad Gita, which are hierarchy and equality. And there's a tension between them. There are natural hierarchies in the world. For example, it's natural that parents raise their children. It's natural that the mother decides what the child's going to eat, not the child. Or what's safe or what's dangerous. Or whether the child should go to school. So it's natural that parents are in charge of their children up to a certain age. It's natural that teachers, if they're qualified, teach their students. It's natural that doctors treat their patients. For example, Every, everyone can't simply put a sign out in front of their house, I'm a doctor, I'm a brain surgeon. It used to be that way. I mean, you may be surprised to know that in America, for example, uh, a, 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 the, the law did not require doctors to pass any kind of exam or be certified until, I think, around the 1870s. And that's why so many people were massacred by doctors. <laughs> so it, 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 it's actually only in recent history that uh, it, it is a professionally controlled and certified profession, like lawyers. And so, and so again, there are hierarchies in every field of life. There are hierarchies. And, and so, but at the same time, there's an equality say, democracy, or even on the spiritual level, an equality of all life. So there's this tension between, and, and you find it, for example, in America now, we have, uh, anyway, I'll control myself and not talk about our president. But, um... Yeah, it is kind of a, makes you proud to know that you have a barbarian in charge of your country. But it's another reason to be a proud American. So... But it's interesting because, you, you, like in political tensions, you, you get liberals that say, no, we should give everyone equal opportunity, and we should, you know, maybe some people will have more money than others, but we should not allow these differences to become too great. And then you have these sort of these uh, social Darwinist, Darwinists, you know, these people that just think, no, survival of the fittest, and if you, you know, if you lose, you lose. And so, you, and so it, it's really the, the tension between hierarchy and equality is the basis of most political tension. And uh, say in a spiritual movement, in a spiritual movement, it's very interesting because in a spiritual movement, say like the Hare Krishna movement, there are hierarchies, there are gurus and disciples, there are leaders and followers and all that. And at the same time, Krishna's teaching in the Bhagavad Gita he does teach that hierarchy because Krishna, for example, says in the Gita 
chatur varnya mayasvishtam, that I created the varna system, the, the social hierarchy, but at the same time, Krishna emphasizes equality. For example, he says, pandita samadarshana, those who are truly wise see all creatures equally. Krishna says that samohang uh, sarva bhuteshu, I am equal to everyone. And samak sarveshu bhuteshu mad bhaktin lavate param, that you can only achieve the highest love of God if you are equal to everyone, like I am equal to everyone. So there are many, many statements. Krishna says, samatang uh, yoga uchate, that yoga is defined as equality. And the word yoga here means, of course, uh, disciplined spiritual practice. So equality is a very big thing in the Bhagavad Gita. And, and, and so we have this tension between hierarchy and equality. Now, it turns out that the hierarchy is external. It is a hierarchy of bodies because let's say someone is a mother or father, someone is a child. And so therefore there's a hierarchy, but it's external. The hierarchy is external. Whereas the quality is internal, it's the soul, and it is the quality, not the hierarchy, which is eternal. And, and Krishna says, those who are truly in goodness see this, that, uh, what is that, uh, 1820 in Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna says that, um, actually I'll read it to you because I happen to have it on my computer. Unless you have a Gita here. No, that's 1830. That's 1820. I'm talking about Gyanam. Well, not, not, so not knowledge anymore. Yes. I can't. I'm very, you can say I'm very tech savvy, as they say. I can actually open a file. It's amazing what a guru can do. can also boil water. So, <laughs> 1820, Krishna says, Sarvabhuteshu jain aikam bhavyam ikshate avibhaktam vibhakteshu tad jnanam vidhisatvikam. That your, here, jnana means something like worldview, actually. If you compare jnana and bhuti, one is synthetic in understanding, one is analytic. Samasa and vyasa. So if you look at by here, by the word jnana, Greek gnosis, jnana, knowledge. Krishna says that when your knowledge is, is in goodness, you see that although there are differences, obviously, I mean, all of us are different, and yet there's, there's a oneness, there's one unified reality which, uh, that brings us all together. Now, if someone's in passion, they only see the difference. They think men and women are different. They think that people from different countries, different religions are different. The difference is what is important to them because they lack this goodness, actually. If you get a spiritual leader who sees the difference more than the equality, that's a problem for <laughs> a so-called spiritual leader. So what's interesting is that, let's say in a spiritual movement, I, I belong to a spiritual movement, actually. I don't know how it happened. I'm still trying to figure it out. But anyway, <laughs> I'm, I'm in therapy right now trying to understand that. But just kidding. So, um, so I'm supposed to be a spiritual leader. My card. 
I'm supposed to be a spiritual leader. But if I see the hierarchy as, as more important than the equality, it means that I'm actually not a real spiritual leader. For, let's say for someone to be a guru, uh, the real, if a guru thinks I'm actually better than my disciples, then the guru is not really qualified. The real qualification to be a spiritual leader is that you don't think you're better than other people. And if you do think you're better than other people, you're not qualified to be a spiritual leader. So, I mean, obviously, like parents. I mean, think of parents and children. Parents don't think they're more important than their children. It's the opposite. They think their children are more important, isn't it? I mean, I mean, you still have to, you still have to, when your children are young, you have to, you know, you have to raise them. But still, isn't it that, that, that in the mind of a loving parent, the children are actually most important? And so, and parents that think that we're more important than our children are really not qualified to be parents. So in this tension between hierarchy and equality, a true spiritualist has to see the equality as most important because the equality is eternal and the hierarchy isn't. And uh, I think, you know, some people who become, you know, they, they may think they're spiritual leaders that kind of become more religious leaders and they become more, they become kind of infatuated with the hierarchy, especially if they're on top. And that's a problem. Anyway, so now, now that I've been able to bash so many other spiritual leaders, um, so, so if I could just just to wrap this up, I wanted to I wanted to add one more point, sort of one more section onto this discussion to kind of give it some logical completeness, and that is that um, so you have this phenomenon, you have people basically, you know, if, if let's say let's just say it's true that we're actually eternal souls, and that's why we are always the same person, even though the body is changing, child adolescent, adult, the body's changing, but it's always you. You're the same person because you're not the body. And let's say that's actually true. You're a soul. And then you have this problem that we're in the material world. We're very heavily embedded in human society. We're subject to all kinds of physical needs, psychological needs, social needs. And, uh, and so what you get is human religions where they are just absorbed in all kinds of external things, such as dress, recipes, certain kinds of sacred architecture, hierarchies, and, and, and so on and so forth. So how do you navigate this? Because if, if spiritually minded people don't work together and organize, the bad people, you know, the bad guys will win. It's like if your country's attacked, and the army says, well, no, you know, we don't want anyone in charge. You know, everyone's in charge. We want to hear everyone's opinion. You're obviously going to have a very short life as a country. And so there has to be organization. Otherwise, it's not possible to teach spiritual knowledge. But as soon as you organize, you start getting all this human stuff involved. And so that's the real challenge, I think, for any spiritual movement, to remain a truly spiritual movement even though it's organized, dealing with power, because as soon as you have hierarchy, someone has power over somebody else, 
and you know that can corrupt people. So it is it is a real challenge. Then you could say, well, how do I, how can I? What if I'm a comparison shopper, as they say, you know, comparison shopping. So there is a there is a so I'll end with there, there is a false impression which is very common in the world that there are dozens if not hundreds of religious groups in the world that each one thinks they're right and that um, they all have they all contradict each other because they all say they're right but they're all different so therefore they all contradict each other and therefore it's ridiculous for anyone to think that they have the truth that's kind of the that's a common way of thinking nowadays which is very popular among people who have never been contaminated by serious philosophy or the study of actual world religions. It's, it's, because if, if we really look at world religion seriously, and, not just, and we don't just take this cartoon version of world religions, what we actually find is that um, in world religions, you tend to find disagreement on a dogmatic level, not on a theological level. I'm going to give you a simple example. Krishna spoke the Bhagavad Gita to Arjuna. So that is a, a specific, detailed, historical claim that approximately 5,000 years ago, there was a person named Krishna, and there was a person named Arjuna, and they talked to each other, and uh, Krishna said, I'm God, and Arjuna believed him, and ever since then, a lot of other people also believed it. So that's a specific historical claim. Now, let's say you take Buddha. Buddha appeared uh, thousands of years later and taught something else. Or you take, let's say, Jesus, or you take Muhammad, or you take someone like Moses, the lawgiver. So these people all appeared in different parts of the world. They spoke different languages. And, and to some extent, you know, they each have their own unique teachings. But if we go deeper, if we go beneath the surface of historical details, what did they actually teach? We find remarkable similarities. And so again, the historical details are different and, and, and fanatics will never agree. If someone says, you know, this is the only way and someone else says that is the only way, they can never agree. But in fact, it's not the case in the history of religions, uh, every religion claims it has the only way. If you look at Christianity, they certainly claim that. Not so much anymore, actually, thank God. I mean, there are some, there's still fanatics that kind of haunt the earth. But, and you know, it, it, and in Islam, in, 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 even in Hinduism, I mean, there are people who are fanatics. However, uh, if you look at the religions, all world religions only came from two parts of the world, the Middle East and South Asia. Buddhism and, and Hinduism came from South Asia, and the Abrahamic religions came from the Middle East. So what you find is that in India, which was not a tribal society, it was actually you know, a very ancient agrarian society with a sophisticated intellectual tradition, they were not religious fanatics. If you look, so first of all, the idea that every religion claims that only, that only we have the truth is historically false. It's historically wrong. What you find in South Asia is, going back thousands and thousands of years, 
people understood that the same God is present in many places and called by different names. So that's the first thing It's not true, that religions tend to be fanatical. Secondly, uh, okay, there are three basic things that religions have to explain. And that is nature, what is the physical world, the earth. Number two, what is the soul, if there is one. And number three, what is God, if there is one. And so in, in Sanskrit, this is called tattva triya, the three fundamental principles. So if you just look at how, let's say, theistic traditions describe God, what you find is uh, it's basically the same. Basically what uh, a philosophy professor I once had called a triple O God. God is omniscient, God is omnipotent, God is omnibenevolent. In other words, all good, all knowing, all kind. Now, you find this exact same claim in so many, practically in all the theistic religions. So, not all, I mean, anyway, I won't go into Gnosticism and Manichaeanism, they're kind of weird things and offshoots, but, but in terms of the religions that survived and became world theistic world religions, they all basically say the same thing, philosophically the same thing. They make different claims about when God appeared or when the son or the prophet or this or that. Yeah, they, have, they, they argue about those things, but in terms of philosophy, they're saying the same thing. Or about the soul, the fact that there's an eternal soul. So, therefore, if we agree that a religion has to explain, or a spiritual tradition, these three things, nature, God, and the soul, then you can actually study this. It's not a question of, it's like, uh, which dogma do I choose? They say they're right, they say they're right. We can actually look at this philosophically. To give one example, um, and then I'll end with this, and then you can ask more questions or uh, not ask questions so you can eat. But um, the hungry people are not going to ask questions, and, 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 they, and they don't want any of you to ask questions. So there was a great medieval philosopher, theologian, Christian, in the, uh, I guess, late Middle Ages, called, um, oh my God. Anselm, Anselm, bless you, Anselmo, and he gave what is called the ontological proof of the existence of God. This is very famous in the history of Western philosophy. And the argument goes something like this. He said, God is that being, then whom, sorry for the twisted syntax, God is that being than whom no greater being can be conceived. I'll, I'll put it in more simple English. Uh, God is that being that is so great that you can't think of any greater being. If you can think of a greater being, then this guy here is not God. So it has to be, it has to be in other words, the, the greatest possible, the greatest possible concept of God is the most true. Now, he was simply trying to prove that God exists. Because, and, and then he had this trick, it's like a philosophical trick, where he said that if you say God doesn't exist, I can imagine a greater God, one that does exist. Yeah. It's a philosophical trick, it's just a good trick, and 
atheistic philosophers are still trying to, are still struggling with it. But anyway, <laughs> but it is, but even if you, I mean, never mind whether or not he really proved God exists. I mean, apart from that, if you accept that the basic idea is true, that if God is infinitely great, here's the logic. If God is infinitely great, then the greatest conception is closest to the truth. Now, interestingly, this is exactly the argument that Rupa Goswami gave in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. Rupa Goswami, for those of you who strangely don't know about medieval Indian theologians, um, there actually are some people that don't know about medieval Indian theologians. Anyway, Rupa Goswami was a, uh, a very great figure, uh, the devotee of Krishna and an intellectual giant in his time from, from even the point of view of mundane scholars. And so he gave an argument in this work, Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, Nectar of Devotion, that um, Krishna, that at least if you look at the pantheon of, of Hinduism, pan in Greek means all and theos God. So just like the, you know, the whole lineup, the whole collection of gods, the pantheon. If you look at the, you know, the Hindu lineup of gods, he said that Krishna is the original God because he's greater. And he actually went into this, it's very interesting, he went into this analysis of the qualities of different figures like Shiva or Shakti, the goddess, different figures. And he was using an intellectual, sort of he was using a, a typology which was accepted by intellectuals of his time. He wasn't just making all this up. And he showed that Krishna actually has more qualities. And so it's interesting, he was using, I'm sure without knowing it, a variation of Anselm's argument. So, and the reason I bring this up is because something you can actually do at home. You don't have to pay a Hare Krishna to do this for you. You can actually do it in your own home. <laughs> if you, if you, if you look at world religions, not from the point of view of dogmatic claims, fanatical claims, but philosophy, human reason, and you just look at the conception of God and you ask yourself the simple question, which conception is greatest in the sense of, for example, beauty. Let's say someone's very smart, but not very beautiful. Well, if someone's very smart and very beautiful, that's even more interesting. And that person will probably get more invitations to parties or something. So, so I mean, basically the six opulences as given, let's say there's beauty, there's strength, there's wisdom, there is uh, knowledge, detachment. In other words, you cannot be, people can't control you by seducing. You can't be seduced by anything. So you can actually study philosophically and in that sense, scientifically. The real problem, imagine if, let's say, in the field of medical science, what if medical science was all nationalistic? For example, what if they invented some cure for some disease in Japan, but in America they said, no, no, we don't want Japanese medicine, we don't want American medicine, or, or in Israel they only want Israeli medicine. I mean, that's not the nature of science. 
Israel is a it's an amazing country and just in terms of its scientific achievements, which is uh, I mean it's amazing. It's such a small country, everyone knows that. So the point is, if something is discovered in Israel, and many things are discovered in Israel, including really great walking sandals, <laughs> not only the Iron Dome, but also walking sandals. So, so the point is that when something is discovered in Israel, uh, the whole world takes advantage of it, maybe except the really stupid people, but, but any rational human being will take advantage of it. It doesn't matter where something comes from. So, same thing with science. You, I mean, you, you, religion has to be put on the level of a science where there's debate and you can test things. It can't be kept on this level of fanaticism and uh, ethnicity. It's like an ethnic characteristic. Because spirituality will only advance in this world if it's put on this rational scientific basis. That's really why the world's going to hell. Because it, it, it's like if the only food in the market is bad food, everyone gets sick. And because religion in general is being dealt with in a very unscientific way, uh, there's no advancement. It's not advancing. Spirituality is not advancing the way it should because it's being dealt with fanatically or ethnically or racially and not scientifically. So um, that's the point. That, that's what we're inviting you to do, to, first of all, consider this whole topic of spirituality as something which you should do as a rational human being. Because assuming that you don't believe that it's okay to kill innocent people or, you know, and all that, then, you know, we all do live in a bi-dimensional universe. We have a material science. Where's the metaphysical science? That's the imbalance. There's like unlimited material science. Where's the metaphysical science? So, so that's what we are claiming is a contribution of this ancient culture. And it really doesn't matter where it came from. It doesn't really matter how people dressed in that country or you know what kind of architecture they had or what kind of musical instruments they played. That's like really irrelevant. The real point is the science, the spiritual science, and that's what we're trying to present. Cool. <laughs> Swami dude. So, <laughs> so thank you all very much for your attention. And um, is there time for questions or no? <clears throat> yes. Someone yeah. has got some questions? So what's the difference between spirituality and religion? Spirituality is what, is what I do, and religion is what other people do. <laughs> <laughs> OK, OK, here's the difference. <laughs> Got to be careful. That's gone. Um, I would say, in the popular way those terms are used, probably spirituality refers to someone's actual consciousness, having a consciousness of compassion, somehow seeing the value of every person, and, and behaving in that way. Whereas religiosity or religion often is thought of as almost like a behavioral definition like behavioral psychology in the sense that observable human behavior, like, okay, someone got up at this time, went to that church, mosque, synagogue, mandir, or, you know, shrine, whatever, performed that ritual, followed this principle, you know, 
ate certain foods or didn't eat certain foods on particular days. And so it's, it's sort of observable behavior as opposed to internal states of consciousness. Now, there was a great um, professor of world religion named um, Houston Smith. He passed away, but in the, 20, in the late 20th century, he was a very, very prominent professor of world religion. He wrote a famous textbook on world religions. And anyway, he was a friend of ours, and, and he made this very interesting point. He talked about the danger of separating spirituality from religion. I mean, the danger of, of having religion without spirituality is, is obvious. Just look at the world. But on the other hand, if you have spirituality without religion, there's another danger. Because anyone can do anything and say, I'm spiritual. People can cheat on their you know, husband or wife. People can mistreat other people and say, well, no, you know, but inside I'm spiritual. And, and so even if you take religious to mean certain behavior, it's like, for example, when Prabhupada was talking to the Beatles, he had a conversation with the Beatles, the Fab Four. How do you get that point? Oh. The cheating part and the spiritual part. Okay. The okay. Sure, I'd be happy to. If, if, let's say someone actually is in spiritual consciousness. In the sense no, of, I got the okay. part. Yeah, I'm getting to it. Okay. We're on the way. <laughs> so, if someone's actually in spiritual consciousness, it should somehow affect their behavior. <clears throat> because, for example, if I, let's say a man meets a woman, and the man is in spiritual consciousness, or the woman's in spiritual consciousness, which means that they see that that person is more than just a biological machine, that there's actually a soul there. So that should, that, that should influence the way that person behaves toward the other person. So, for, for example, there were people claiming to be spiritual leaders, but they were kind of sexaholics. Yes. Yeah, claiming to be Yeah, in other words, if I claim that I'm a spiritual person, you have a right to look at my life, to look at my behavior, and to say, you know, why does he eat 10 pounds of chocolate every day? Actually, it's not really true. But so that, and, and because a spiritual person should behave spiritually, which means not exploiting other people, not exploiting their own body. And, and, and really caring about other people and connecting with other people. And also, again, to get the point I was about to make, um, when Prabhupada was talking to the Beatles, and I think it was, um, I can't remember, it was George Harrison or one of them, said to Prabhupada, um, how, can you, how do you know who's really... John Lennon, John Lennon said, asked it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, how do you know who's really Krishna conscious? And Prabhupada said, you have to see who's addicted to Krishna. In other words, I remember when I was in school, and a boy would get a crush on a girl, a girl would get a crush on a boy. Everyone knew. You know, they might try to hide it. But it's like when you're in school and someone really likes someone else, everyone knows it by their behavior, by the way they act in the presence of that person. And so if someone claims to love God, it should, um, 
we should see that there, there's a real devotion there in, in terms of their behavior. Is that clear? Yes. Mashlameh. <laughs> nice to see you. Yeah, actually. Well, it's interesting because um, it's, oh, okay. Uh, I'll repeat it. Tell me if I get it right, okay? You were asking about um, one of the things, one of the important issues is what kind of relationship do we have with the spiritual realm and what, and, or that realm with us? in different religions. I think that's very similar to the point I was just discussing with this young lady in that um, if I really have a, a, an experience of that spiritual realm, it's not just some doctrine I, I, I believe in, but if I really have an experience of it, then uh, that should to some extent detach me from this world. It's, you know, it's, it's like if, if a guy and a girl get together, but, you know, the guy still wants to call his old girlfriend 20 times a day, it's something's wrong. Or if the girl still wants to go out, you know, so it, it's like when you really, when you're really attached to something, when you really love something, that's it. You know, that, that's it. That's the relationship for you. And, and, and you commit. When people people that don't commit to a relationship, it's because they're not really there yet. But this is where the triangle gets short, you know? Many people believe in some kind of... Right. But not many people have a relationship. Well, but yeah, but that's, that's another important issue. If, if um, someone is teaching a particular path, like here is the best way to get to God, we have to see if it's really doable. I mean, does it really work? It's interesting because we can see all around the world in many religions, including Hinduism, I mean, I mean, in all religions, that there are religious communities where the more religious someone becomes, the less they seem to care about other people that aren't in their community, and the less they're kind to other people. And, and so it's, it's like going backwards. Because the, if God loves everyone, 
so, so, so if God loves everyone, then the more you are connected to God, the more you will love everyone. So if, if, you, if you find a, a so-called religious path where the more serious people are, the more strict they are, the more they follow the rules, the more they don't care about other people, the more they don't like other people, that's crazy. That's crazy. They're going backwards. They're really going backwards. And, and because if you're really approaching God, then you like everyone more and more. I mean, you see everyone as part of God. So that's one test. So, so all these things, I mean, I'm glad you brought up those points. Those are good points. That um, actually all these points are connected, really. Because, I mean, start out with this question about religion and spirituality. And so if someone is really spiritual, use that simple word, in terms of their having a strong connection with the spiritual realm, or in terms of having a strong connection with their own soul, or a strong connection really seeing other people as souls, then it's, it, it, it transforms your life. And if my life is not transformed, I'm just not there yet. And so we have to see, if someone is advertising a path, like you know preaching, you should do this, this is the path, we have to see if it, if it really works or not. Otherwise, it's like that old saying, the operation was a success, but the patient died. And so, yes? I want to refer to it in a little bit to elaborate. It will be complex, so I'll try to explain by myself in Hebrew and then translate it to English. But uh, eventually, like, uh, if someone doesn't believe it in God at all, but he loves other people, super giving, what yeah. not, follows all the rules to be redeemed without even believing in someone that truly believes doesn't uh, just do bad around him. So he won't be redeemed. Um, like, assuming all of us have connection with God, you don't have to be aware or even to address it if you do good or follow him without believing him. Yeah, Krishna, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is not fanatical. That's the good news. God is not a religious fanatic. <laughs> so what that means is, you know, religious fanatics don't represent God, obviously. But, but to get to this point, so Krishna, it's very interesting, because even if you look at, um, oh gosh, I put this. Uh, if you look at, let's say, Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, exactly as you said, if someone is, let's say, virtuous, to put a name on it, virtuous, good person, then that person will get wisdom, because goodness brings wisdom. That person will be happy and even be elevated in their next life without Krishna. I mean, it is Krishna because he's helping them, but there's no doctrinal requirement. It's very interesting. If, if you look at what I consider to be this uh, drastic corruption, of the Jesus movement, uh, which took place a few thousand years ago. And that is, if, if you look at what Jesus actually taught, and, and, and this is, what I'm speaking now is kind of what you would learn in a typical university class on early Christian history. You know, the idea that love God with all your heart, soul, and might, love your neighbor as yourself, follow the good Samaritan, you know, whatever you do to the least of my people you did to me, etc., etc. 
So basic, what's interesting about this is if, if you put all these teachings together, if Jesus actually said these things, if you put all these teachings together, you get a moral or ethical requirement for salvation. You have to be a good person. And you have to, and of course, you have to love God, to go to God, but you have to be a good person. What happened is, and uh, I won't go into all the details, this was changed by the early church so that instead of an ethical requirement or a devotional requirement that you love, you love God, you love other people, it became a doctrinal requirement. You're saved by believing a particular doctrine, even if Jesus didn't teach it himself, but by believing a particular doctrine, you're saved. And so therefore, this became kind of like the paradigm for religion. Religions are groups of people that say that for you to be saved, you have to believe certain things. And, uh, which of course is not what Jesus taught, it's not what, now in the case of Krishna, Krishna doesn't say that if you don't believe that I'm God, I'll throw you into a lake of fire. You know, I mean, these are, I mean, I think some of the sickest minds in history thought up these things. I mean, we're, we're not just talking about wrong theology, we're talking about almost like sociopathic theology. So what Krishna says is that there is no that you will get fair reciprocation. If you are good, you'll get good results. Now, if you want Krishna, then you have to love Krishna. I mean, that's fair. I mean, you're not gonna invite someone into your home that doesn't like you, right? <laughs> and so, so there's no doctrinal requirements just to be happy in this world. But if you want to go to Krishna's world, then you have to, you have to love Krishna. Now, there's a sense in which <coughs> There's a sense in which <clears throat> um, not accepting Krishna is a type of flaw. Not one that you'll be tortured for, you won't go to hell for it, you can even have a nice life in this world. Because if it is the case, let's just put this hypothetically just to show the logic of it. If it is the case that, as Krishna says, Everything comes from Krishna or from God, as the Brahma Sutras Vedanta says, if it's actually true that everything comes from God, that means that everything that we appreciate in this world is actually coming from God. So you're a non-believer, it seems. Like. What's that? Also, you not believing comes from God. True. Absolutely. Krishna says that in the Gita. Because, but it would have to come from God. Because if you are inclined not to accept God, and if Krishna did not psychologically facilitate that, then you would not have free will. So to protect your free will, you have to be Krishna reciprocates. But if everything is coming from Krishna, if that's the case, then whatever we're attracted to, let's say you, you like this world, the beauty of this world, but that's also part of Krishna. So you're really loving Krishna. In other words, even the virtuous person is loving Krishna without knowing it. And so attraction to anything. And by attraction, I and mean, there's obviously different kinds of attraction. There's a kind of attraction where you want to exploit something. And there's a kind of attraction where you just admire without the desire to exploit. 
For example, a man can admire a beautiful woman without the desire to exploit the woman. So, uh, so any virtuous appreciation, which by that I mean not, it's not exploitative. You're not trying to dominate another person or exploit another person or even exploit nature. It's just innocent appreciation. Is actually God consciousness, even if the person doesn't know it. And, and that's what Krishna teaches. So it is, it is a stage of God consciousness. It's just a little naive because the person doesn't know where it comes from. So it's not evil, it's just naive. <laughs> so anything else we can help you with? Weather? Traffic? <laughs> uh, oh yes, and uh, actually we're going over time, so we made just another minute or two. Yes, uh, Billy, this is my music, <laughs> my music associate. <laughs> so you said that uh, Krishna is not uh, doesn't um, punish 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 anyone for not believing, but he does. Uh, that the skeptical uh, soul will uh, go downwards and he will cast him to lower species of life. No, actually, he doesn't say that, thank God. <laughs> if he did say that, then uh, I'd be in trouble right now. No, actually, no, he doesn't say skeptical soul. What he says, I mean, I think you're mixing a few verses here. As far as what Krishna says, he says those who are demonic, in other words, people who exploit other people, people that cause suffering to the world, they're the ones that, that go down because, because they deserve it, because they're, they're, they're causing suffering to the world. What Krishna says is that if you doubt the truth, you, you won't achieve the truth. That, that's obvious. It's like, let's say, I mean, there are people every day that die because they have this uh, radical skepticism about allopathic medicine. I'm not, you know, a cheerleader for allopathic medicine. I just, uh, but there are some cases where you need it. I, I personally have disciples of mine, fortunately not lately, but I have several, several devotees were disciples of mine who died, died in you know, the final sense of the word, unnecessarily because they had two religions. One religion was Krishna consciousness. The other religion was natural medicine. They had curable diseases that they would not treat by allopathic medicine. And so, I mean, imagine if you're, in a, I mean, God forbid, let's say someone's in a burning house and a fireman comes to save the person and, says, no, and the person doubts that it's safe. I mean, doubting the truth uh, can be very dangerous. You can, you can lose your life by doubting the wrong thing. And so what Krishna is saying is that, um, that if, you, if you're always doubting, what he says actually is samsiyatma. In other words, someone who's just always doubting, always doubting, then how can, you, how can you find the truth if you're just predisposed to doubt, even when you don't have good reasons to doubt? We have a common expression, blind faith. Right? Everyone's heard of blind faith. How do you say it in Hebrew? Yes, exactly. That's what I thought it was. <laughs> so, not really. 
So, but there's also blind doubt. We live in an age that is prejudiced towards skepticism about spiritual things. So Krishna is saying, if you doubt everything, then how can you achieve anything? For example, how can you be successful in your career if you doubt that, no, I'll, you know, I'll, I don't think I can ever be successful, or if I go to college, I won't do well. If I, I mean, if you, how can you achieve anything if you doubt everything? That's what Krishna is saying. As far as people that he really puts down, those are the people who are demonic. and like two, two, two yeah. different things. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> so I guess we'll, we'll end here. I want to, uh, to thank Maharaj so far. I, so far, because you don't know what I'm going to do afterwards, right? <laughs> so far, it's okay, but... <laughs> People and, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we are. Uh, thank you, uh, Mara. Thank you very much for your enlivening uh, presentation.